Welcome to Connect, the weekly podcast for the California MBA, featuring one-on-one interviews with movers and shakers in the mortgage industry. I'm Susan Malazzo, CEO of the California MBA, and very happy that you could join us today. Before we get to today's guest, I'd like to thank our 2023 President's Council sponsors. Now, these are a handful of companies that have provided a significant amount of financial support for the association so that we can maintain our strong service to the real estate finance industry by being advocates before the California State Legislature and our regulators. So I would like to thank Amerihome, ArchMI, Consolidated Analytics, Incelerate, Funding Shield, Guild Mortgage, Rocket Mortgage, and Western Alliance Bank. Thank you all so much for your support this year. Greatly appreciate that. And with that, I'd like to turn to today's guest, uh, a legend in the real estate finance industry. I'm very happy to be welcoming Mitch Keiter from Wiener Brodsky to connect. Mitch, welcome. Hey, thank you, Susan. Great to be here with you today. Um, I, uh, you know, it has, I know you've been a guest on Connect in the past, so thank you for joining us again, but I do think it's always very interesting to kind of get started a little bit about how you got started in this business, in particular, legal representation for the financial industry. Okay, so it's actually a pretty interesting story to tell you the truth. You know, you know that I grew up the son of immigrants in Queens in New York, and, you know, from a very early age, I was really taught the importance of a home. You know, the importance of it to your physical, your mental, your emotional well-being. So housing in America and, you know, more specifically, the ability to buy a house is something that from the very beginning uh, I understood and was very important to me. I mean, you know, my story, my father used to point to the bank that he got his first mortgage loan from and tell me that that's where he got the money to buy his house. Uh, So. From there, you know, I went on to school and college. I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison. I was there for about a week and I called up the mayor's office and said, hey, I'd really like to come work there. And they actually invited me in and I talked to them and we talked about some interesting projects. And the first thing was housing related, you know, and I ended up helping the mayor uh, set up the first tenant landlord rental relations mediation board in the country. And from there, I just became an advisor on housing related issues. Then I went to law school and there was a professor in my law school, Daniel Mandelker, who was the most renowned uh, legal scholar in the area of land use and housing and housing finance as well. And he knew what I did in Madison and he actually asked me to be his research assistant. So this really started at a young age. I was his research assistant. We worked on articles, we worked on books, things along those particular lines. And I got a whole lot of exposure to what was going on in the uh, in the world of housing and housing finance itself. So where would I go after that? What was the most logical place? I went to HUD and I regulated mortgage bankers, FHA, uh, FHA lenders. I regulated and litigated them. And that's where I actually got a much better understanding of our housing finance system and things that are there. After HUD, I went into private practice and I put it to use. I've represented lenders ever since. That is an incredible story. I remember when you started telling this, you did that interview, was it with Dave Stevens? 
yeah. talking about that. And I think that the National MBA used your story about like the importance that your family put on housing. Um, we were in, in our messaging about the good work that mortgage banking industry does in helping people achieve the American dream. Yeah, yeah, no, housing, housing is an amazing thing. And, uh, and it's very unique to the United States that we have such a great housing finance system where people can achieve the dream right. home. And, uh, you know, coming from immigrants, you, you recognize that pretty early on. Right. Yeah. The, the best way to, to create that generational wealth as well. That's right. That's exactly right. You know, you and I had a chance to uh, sit down and chat for a while at the IMB conference uh, in January. And, uh, you know, you have a very unique perspective, I think, on, on the market that we're all, you know, navigating through in 2023. Um, you know, talking about your reflection on past down markets. Um, and I think that there's, you know, there is an element of people in the mortgage industry that haven't experienced the down market. If they've only been in the business for 10 or 11 years, they don't, they think it's always great. It's not always great. <laughs> and you just had a, um, some great ideas, uh, kind of a perspective on it. And I was hoping you could share with our listeners kind of your perspective on, on what we're experiencing this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the market is not always great. Uh, that's absolutely right. It's not great at all right now. But, you know, I, I began my career as an attorney in 1981 in what at the time was the worst recession since the Great Depression. And I don't know if you recall or not, but interest rates had gone up to 20% or so. And the Fed, you know, in a similar manner to what the Fed's doing now, they were trying to fight inflation and break the back of inflation, which was terrible. They did, you know, and then by 1983, uh, the economy had turned and things began, you know, to get much, much better, which is why Reagan got reelected in, 19, uh, in 1984. He was the beneficiary of that. Uh, I started my law firm in 1992 in the middle of a recession. And everyone said to me, you're absolutely crazy. You can't start a work from the recession, you know, and things just took off ever since then. Since 1992, I've probably witnessed and experienced three major downsides, not the least of which was 2007, 2008. The reality is our economy, both our economy here and the global economy is cyclical by its very nature. And so is this industry. The mortgage banking industry is cyclical as well. And so we've been through this. Some people say this is the worst we've ever been through, uh, through the mortgage banking industry, and maybe that's so. But, you know, if it is so, it's probably exacerbated by the very, very good years that mortgage bankers had in 2020 right. and 2021. So if you look at the downturn, I mean, there's a steep fall from those particular years which were simply extraordinary years, right? This right. is what happens. I mean, lenders, they need to find ways to hold tight, okay? To cut their costs, to weather, weather the storm and reach a better level of equilibrium. And lenders do that, you know? They also have to look for opportunities. No matter what the market is, there are opportunities in the market. The opportunities today, for example, in the home equity space, spectacular. Spectacular. There are opportunities in that space. There are opportunities with down payment assistance and HFA loans, you know, bond loans, things along those particular lines. 
they're probably good opportunities in all honesty in the reverse space as well because of the need for that. And uh, so there's a, there's a lot that still can be done. I don't want to make light of it. It's very tough right now. Uh, it's it's brought about by the actions of the Fed to try to curb uh, to try to curb inflation. Uh, actually, I, you know, in many ways, the bank crisis is brought, brought about uh, as a result of that as well. I mean, banks investing in the long term in securities with very very low interest rates, low interest rates created by the Federal Reserve Board, quite frankly. So, right. I mean, we can we can actually point to and see exactly what the cause is. Uh, we can understand the reason for the cause, cause and why the Fed is doing what they're doing. We may disagree, uh, you know, we may agree or disagree as to whether or not they're taking the proper measures, but we can see it. And it's not going to last forever. You've got to weather this particular storm, and this industry has been through this many, many times. Yeah, and so good, uh, you know, for, for those lenders that have been through that cycle, remind the newer entrants into the industry, like you're saying, you know, you have to look at different products. You have to be innovative about what it is you're doing, how you're helping borrowers and, and where those markets are where, you know, people are ready to become a homeowner. And uh, and and it's just not, uh, it's not the amount of volume that we've seen over the past couple of years, which, you know, everybody agrees is pretty unrealistic, but getting back to some normalcy uh, in the market at this point. Yeah, yeah, I mean, listen, we've had, we've had about 13, uh 13 or 14 very low interest rate years we've watched those rates come down all the way and so yeah. many people in the industry today have not seen the down cycle but it was right. artificial it was artificial to tell you the truth that was created by central banks and the federal reserve board as well and now they're backing off of that and we're coming to a to a normal range the reality is when we find our interest rates at, you know about five percent or the five percent range things are going to turn things will turn for the industry as well. Right, right. You know, uh, you and several of your attorneys at Wiener Grodsky have been very active with us over the years on our, um, our, our legal issues agenda, our legislative agenda, um, for which we're very grateful for the expertise that your, your firm brings to, to us here out in, out in California. What, what would you say is the most important legislative issue that we're facing in 2023? So let me let me start with you know where is the most important legislative issue that we're finding in 2023, and it's not on the federal level. Okay, given the makeup of the House of Representatives, majority Republican, Senate majority Democratic, you're not going to see a lot of legislation that's going to have an impact one way or the other on a federal level. That's that's my belief, but I think you are going to see a lot of things at states, and mm -hmm. I think. Most of the, the issues that you're going to run into are going to be state legislative issues. Legislative issues, for example, uh, you know, states trying to impose uh, CRM requirements, community reinvestment requirements, CRA requirements on uh, on independent mortgage bankers. I think mm -hmm. in some of that, we're going to see some more of that. I think it's misplaced. Uh, I think it's dangerous in certain ways, and I think it could be harmful to uh, independent mortgage bankers. So that's an issue. The other issue that I think is, is you know, a constant issue and that will continue on, it's going to be very big from a legislative perspective, is privacy and cybersecurity and data portability as well. 
as to what the consumer can do to access their data and, and move it from one lender to another lender. That's something that's looked at on a federal level too. I think those are the biggest areas that we're going to see things happening. But, and, uh, no, I think that's good perspective, but you know, given kind of the political makeup at the federal level, it is, you know, lenders should be kind of looking to what, what legislation is happening in any state they're licensed in. That's exactly right. And states are, you know, they're active and increasingly they're getting more and more active. And that's where the action is and will be, I think, for the next couple of years as a result of, you know, federal politics being, being what they are. Of course, on a federal level, you have to worry about the regulatory side. And, you know, on the federal level, the regulatory side, you know, is dealing with all of those very same issues, plus, uh, plus fair lending. States deal with fair lending as well, obviously, but, you know, very active enforcement from a fair lending perspective, not just the CFPB, but at HUD as well, which has the, uh, the Fair Housing Act and is responsible for the Fair Housing Act and uh, things along those particular lines. So, you know, it, it's a combination. If you're looking on the legislative side in terms of new laws, you're looking to the states. If you're looking at enforcement and regulation, you are principally looking toward the federal government and what's going on with the CFPB as well as prudential regulators. Right. And uh, that actually kind of brings me to my next question for you. You know, you um, have been very gracious to come and participate as a speaker at our legal issues and reg compliance conference that we do each December in Southern California. And we typically ask you to share your thoughts on, on fair lending. Uh, you're one of the leading experts in the country. What, what should lenders be thinking about this year as far as fair lending compliance? Oh God, they should be thinking about everything. In terms of fair lending compliance, uh, lenders have to recognize that it is of the utmost of importance uh, on a federal level and to a large degree on a state level as well. Lenders need to think about pricing. And when they talk about pricing their product, pricing their loans, uh, oftentimes lenders run into trouble uh, in that they have disparities in their pricing based on discretion. Discretion that's given to loan originators, for example, in, in pricing and, and concessions and things along those particular lines. Lenders need to be monitoring this, not just on an annual basis. And the reality is they should be monitoring this on a quarterly basis, uh, in all honesty. They need to think about redlining. You know, we heard about the Townsend case, and we know that uh, Federal District Court in Chicago said that the CFPB's theory of ECOA uh, and, and coming forward with a redlining theory based on discouragement under ECOA uh, was, was, didn't meet the statutory language or the statutory uh, requirements, and there was no statutory or congressional authority for that. I actually really agree with that particular decision, but that doesn't mean that you're not gonna see more redlining cases. You're gonna see them come out of the Department of Justice. There are investigations that are pending there right now. You're going to see them come out of the out of the Department of Housing and Urban Development under the Fair Housing Act, and that's not just FHA. We're talking HUD itself. FHA is just you know a part of the vision of uh, of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Lenders need to be concerned about the neighborhoods that are that surround them. 
they need to be concerned about making loans in high majority areas uh, and taking applications, especially in these particular areas, so that they can make loans. And so lenders need to be concerned about their outreach efforts, their marketing efforts. They need to be concerned about what they look like, what the community looks like, and how they reach underserved census tracts in underserved areas along those particular lines. Really important uh, from a fair lending perspective. Lenders also need to be concerned with valuation issues. More and more, we're picking up these complaints about appraisal bias and appraisal yeah. discrimination. You know, and a lot of that, you know, it started with, you know, anecdotal support saying, hey, an appraiser did an appraisal and they saw pictures of the black family there and they came in with a really low appraisal. Then they invited the appraiser back and there were no pictures along those particular lines or into the house. And so they had no idea that, you know, a uh, protected minority group lived there and suddenly the appraisal is much higher. Uh, it's a problem, you know, and there is a task force that was formed on it that found that that's a problem as well. From a lender perspective, okay, lenders need to make sure that they are reviewing those appraisals properly and that they have a good reconsideration of value process in place where the consumer can come back and say, hey, this value is too low. And I think this value may be too low as a result of bias or something else along those lines. And lenders have to put themselves in a position where they can address that, where they exercise their own individual judgment and expertise in making a determination as to whether or not that needs to be elevated. Do you need a second appraisal on that? Do you need an appraiser to answer certain questions? Things along those particular lines. You're going to see a lot of emphasis in that area, in this area. We're beginning to see it and you're going to see a lot more. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's, uh, yeah, definitely needs to stay top of mind for uh, for lenders and, you know, double check those policies and procedures on what you have for evaluating those appraisals and making sure that you're, you know, you're you're reaching those communities. That's right. Yeah. And that, that's, I mean, that's really important. And you have to remember, uh, you know, that fair lending, you know, is actually a civil right. The Fair Housing Act is a civil rights act. And, and it's important. And, you know, you don't always think about it in those terms, but you should, because that's right. really yeah. Right. Um, you know, Mitch, outside uh, of your legal career, uh, I noticed that you are on the board for Project Hope at uh, Johns Hopkins uh, um, Medicine. Um, Project Restore is a collaborative multidiscipline effort to develop therapies to treat neuroimmunologic disorders like multiple sclerosis and transverse myelitis. Can right. you tell us a little bit about Project Hope? Yeah, so it's, it's Project Restore is what it really is, and it's part of Project Hope, and it deals with three diseases. It comes out of the neurology department of Johns Hopkins uh, University and Johns Hopkins Hospital, and it deals with the uh, multiple sclerosis, MS, it deals with, which is a disease in which your immune system attacks the myelin that's protecting your spinal cord, as well as your brain, as well as your optical nerve. And, you know, in, uh, in MS, 
the myelin is attacked and that's a protective sheath that gets burnt off and that ultimately has an impact on the nerves underneath it, the spinal cord, brain and everything else along those lines. Transverse myelitis is very similar to, uh, to, to MS, except it's a single event that occurs and it only impacts the spinal, uh, the spinal cord. And the third disease that it looks at is uh, neuromyelitis optica, which, which is the same type of disease. All of these are disorders affecting the central nervous system, basically. And, you know, neuromyelitis optica attacks the optical nerve. So Project Restore at Johns Hopkins is, a, uh, is an effort to, uh, to not just find a cure. It's very difficult to find a cure to these diseases. People are still looking for it as they are over there as well. But they have an especially uh, cutting edge approach to finding different treatments, both medicinal, therapeutic, and other things to mitigate the impacts of these mm. diseases. For example, I, you know, through Project Restore and Project Hope, uh, my wife and I helped fund a lab at Johns Hopkins that, uh, that is studying remyelinization. In other words, after an attack of MS or transverse myelitis, when the myelin has been burnt off, how do you restore the myelin so you can protect that particular nerve? So it's fascinating to tell you the truth. And, you know, we get to meet with doctors and scientists and uh, pharmaceutical companies on a fairly regular basis and, uh, and listen to everything that's happening on a cutting edge basis from a lay perspective off of whatever help that we can. And that includes through fundraising. And, you know, in all honesty, I've been doing this since, uh, I've been doing this for almost 13 years now since my wife was diagnosed with MS. And that's how I first got involved in it. Well, that is uh, incredible. And, in, uh, you know, managing partner at a, a national law firm and, and being such an instrumental uh, volunteer for uh, a board that's import, as important as this is, is just phenomenal. It's great, uh, must feel good to, you know, give back to those people that are going to benefit from, you know, the, you know, dealing with the, the symptoms that come along with, with these diagnoses. Yeah, it does. And it's an amazing thing. You know, I mean, if you go back 25 years, a diagnosis of MS, you know, was, was not a good diagnosis and there wasn't right. much that they could do about it. If you look at it today, uh, you know, there are many people walking around, including my wife, you would never know she has MS. So right? many people, yeah. Therapies and, and, the, and the drugs uh, that have been developed for it have, have absolutely been game changers. And so yeah. it's, it's, it's really fulfilling being, you know, a part of both hearing about it and helping them in any way that I can. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. I like to uh, always include in these, uh, in these conversations, you know, anytime someone is really passionate about a nonprofit and, um, you know, that's, uh, that's just incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. You know, you uh, um, have been a big supporter of the California MBA uh, for, for many years, um, not only with uh, your membership, but you and your attorneys provide, um, you know, great content for our events, our webinars, information, education out to the industry, great feedback on legislative issues. That's very important to us. 
Uh, can you share with us why you're such a big supporter of California MBA? So let me start here, okay? California MBA is very good at, uh, one of the very best uh, at, you know, promoting our housing finance system. And as you can tell from everything else that I've said here today, that's extraordinarily important. You and I both recognize, and your members I'm sure recognize, that there are strength in numbers. The California MBA can accomplish more than any one single lender can accomplish on their own because of that strength in numbers. Your educational programs are great. And, you know, I, I am very much a proponent, as you can tell, of our housing finance system. But I am also a proponent of those participants in the system doing it right, understanding what's required of them, understanding the rules itself. And your educational programs are geared towards that. And that's, uh, you know, that's, that's essential. That's essential to the industry. So, you know, in a nutshell, you're providing a great service to your members, absolutely. But you're actually providing a great public service as well by promoting our, you know, our housing finance system in, in, in an honest and uh, in an honest manner and recognizing and making your members recognize both their obligations and their responsibilities as they participate in this particular marketplace. And so, you know, as long as you keep doing that, I will be your biggest supporter. Well, well, thank you. I appreciate that kind words. We uh, we take what we do very seriously, and uh, I tell people I have the best job because I love the mortgage business, and uh, it's been a it's been a good ride for all the years that I've been doing this. But thank you for your support, and Mitch, thanks so much for being uh, a guest on Connect. This has been great. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us on today's uh, episode of Connect. To access any of our past episodes, you can follow us on our YouTube channel. We're also available on um, SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. That's it for this week, and we'll see you next time on Connect. <laughs>